Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I am so glad you joined us today. Hey, what does this lesson have to do with me? Why are we learning this? When will I ever use this? How many times have we heard that from our students? Students' brains are diligently searching for the answer to that question, in part to determine how much energy their brains want to expend on this task. Sometimes, let's admit it, it's a bit of a reach. I mean, the Jamestown Colony was established in 1607. We've all memorized the parts of the cell but does it matter to us? So how can we make learning more relevant? That's a really big question because relevance and the value of a task can increase a student's motivation to learn and even work harder. So guess what? I happen to have the perfect expert to guide us in this conversation about relevance. It's author Dennis Sheeran. Dennis is a master at looking all around us and seeing relevance we can be bringing to the classroom. Hey, Dennis. Hi, Susie. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. I'm so glad you're here. Let me tell everybody three things about you. Uh, Dennis wrote a book called uh, Instant Relevance, Using Today's Experiences to Teach Tomorrow's Lesson, and that's published by Dave Burgess Consulting. He's a math supervisor for a district. He leads professional development on relevance, STEAM lessons, and ed tech. And so we're going to get right into this question. The first thing I want to know from you, Dennis, is a little more about your work and where you came up with this passion for making learning relevant. How did that develop? Well, I taught high school math for 13 years before moving back to New Jersey uh, and taking on a, an administrative role. And in that teaching, I kind of felt like uh, I was doing a great job of, of, of explaining lessons really clearly for kids or coming up with that perfect organizational product that will get them through to being able to understand something. And a lot of the times I, I branched out into doing some really, I thought, interesting projects and tasks and ideas. But uh it became pretty clear to me when I became an administrator that classroom by classroom by classroom that I was going into, I was seeing kids sit and listen and write. And in a math classroom, what that means is that you've got a class full of textbook transcribers. Like you might as well just rewrite a book and then walk out with a notebook that looks like a textbook because that's what was happening in those classrooms. And so beyond the, the real world application problem, which the kids would just also sit there, write down and then start doing the math to, I started to recognize that these kids really needed to engage with what they cared about most. And at the same time, I started connecting with people on Twitter with uh, Dave Burgess and the Teach Like a Pirate group and the Breakfast Club group and different groups of people who were, who were talking more about, you know, we've got to do more for kids. We've got to, to be more about kids. And that's what I thought, listen, what I'm seeing here is an opportunity to take the traditional application problems and kind of throw that out the window. And instead, let's try to find what kids care about most and then extract the math lessons and the lessons from that. Because if they already care about it, that's the path of least resistance. That's the way for me to get into their heads and to drive passionate learning and to maybe even have them come up with the question of, hey, I'm stuck. What do I do next? And now I've really got an opportunity to teach. 
Well, that's pretty exciting. I want to start with a commercial, and this this really uh, caught me in your book. You tell a story about this, and I I really liked that commercial. So I saw it from a different perspective when I read about this. Tell us about the time you're watching the Super Bowl and an insurance commercial ran, and you watched it, and then you brought that into the classroom. Share that with us. Uh, yeah, sure. That's the Prudential commercial from the, I think it was the 2012 uh, Super Bowl where they had a guy ask, you know, how old is the oldest person you know? And then someone would take a blue sticker and they'd write that person's name on it and they'd stick it on a giant wall that was set up somewhere in Texas because that's, you know, where you set up giant walls. And uh, when you looked at the, the graph of all of those stickers all at once, it formed a nice kind of looking normal curve, normal distribution shape. But the key factor to them was that all of those stickers were past the retirement age. So Prudential was trying to tell people, wow, look at all these people. You're going to need to save for retirement. And at the time, I was teaching AP statistics for the, uh, the seventh year. And uh, we were right around that time where we were looking at data critically and trying to, to prove people wrong. And so instead of looking at that commercial thinking, oh, God, I got to put more money in my savings accounts because I'm not going to be able to retire. I looked at it and realized, you know, those stickers aren't normal people. Those stickers are the most are the oldest person I know. So that's not a graph of normal people. That's a graph of outliers or the extremes. And instead of doing what I probably would have done a year or two before, which was take that, turn it into a well-constructed explanation point and showing it to my kids and going through a lesson with them, I actually just put the video in front of them and asked, what do you think? And it wasn't long before they asked the same question. Wait a second. That's, that's not real people. Those are old people. Those are outliers. What, that, that can't be true. And so we were able to follow that down a path of learning through Googling average life expectancy and doing confidence intervals and hypothesis tests to be able to prove that this information was true or false or just different than was expected. And they asked the question. They came up with, is that true? Is that wrong? Are they trying to, to, to lie to us as a company? And because they asked that question, they were so much more interested in answering it that I didn't have to be the preparer of that lesson to full explanation. They engaged to the point where they kept asking me, how much farther can we go? Should we write this up officially? What does an official statistics paper look like so that we can send this to the company and prove them wrong? That, that's what drives learning. And what's so exciting about that example is, you know, they were all watching the Super Bowl and and could relate right away that they saw that commercial. And they were probably like me, where I just thought, oh, look at all the pretty sticky notes. You know what I mean? I'd, and, and then bringing that in the next day, I think that just makes learning so exciting. Now, I'm going to go to a different end and stay with the television thing. But one of the programs you mentioned you like, but you use it as a sedative, is Antiques Roadshow. And I like that show, too, if I'm having trouble sleeping. Um, you like to you and you one night you're watching it and you saw a piece of art designed by a famous mathematician and you took that experience and brought that into the classroom. Share that a little bit with us. So I think one of the keys that that you're touching on here is each time something like this is happening, uh, I, I might not notice right away. I'm not looking for a lesson. I'm not looking for something interesting to do in a classroom. I'm not searching the internet and finding myself deep down the dark hole of teachers pay teachers. I'm just kind of aware of what's going on around me and then thinking about it from a slightly different lens. So when it comes to the Antiques Roadshow example, uh, I had been talking or I had seen this Antiques Roadshow episode and it was an Alexander Calder mobile. Now, he's an incredible artist, and I didn't really understand how much his art was worth until I saw this mobile, which was top to bottom, like 
two and a half feet long. It really wasn't all that big. And he's built some sculptures and mobiles that are gigantic. But this one, being authenticated because of the provenance of it and, and the owner of it, was worth between 500000 and a million dollars for this tiny little mobile. And that made me think, holy cow, that's so cool that not only is this uh, just worth so much money, it's a really cool looking thing. And then I just watched the show, fell asleep, and put that in my pocket for that without even thinking about it until the next day when I had a pre-conference for an observation with a teacher who was teaching a physics class. And they were designing... And they were doing an experiment in a lab in that class on, on balanced forces and weights. And so they were going to be doing balance, uh, balanced force lab. And I said, hey, wait a second. I just saw this episode of Antiques Roadshow last night. And it has an incredibly perfect example of balanced forces, but it's in the artistic realm. It might be interesting if you show the kids the clip of that video and then maybe ask them some questions about do some research on Alexander Calder before they come into class. And uh in a leap of faith, that teacher took my advice and uh, showed the kids the video and said, hey, just let's uh, look up this guy. Look up a little bit more about him and come in. Instead of sending them home with some pre-lab questions and some, some setup, he sparked their interest in balanced forces. And they were, they were doing the lab the way they would have done any other lab, but you could see in them that they were really interested in the results to the point where one kid at the end said, uh, hey, we can't hang these up. They were stacking or they were building uh, – meter sticks with different weights hanging on each side. And he goes, but, but maybe we could stack them and make like a standing mobile instead of a hanging one. So they decided at, at that point on the fly that what they had learned would be interesting to apply to an artistic situation. So what I mentioned at the beginning of this is that when you're aware of those situations and you're willing to, to really think about maybe your interests or the things that apply to you right now and bring them into the classroom right now, uh, that's the point of, of instant relevance. It's not just that you, know, you, you can add an ingredient and all of a sudden it's relevant. It's that if something matters to you now, use it now because there's an opportunity that it's going to go away soon and it might not matter to anyone later. I really love this approach, and it makes me think of, okay, I have a love for guacamole, and um, my son and I always go to a burrito bar here, and they're always very careful about measuring how much guacamole you get. And I, and they always want to say, like, if you go to Chipotle, they'll say, well, we, you can have the guacamole, but we're going to have to charge you more. We're going to have to have you sign a contract. We're going to have to run a credit check <laughs> you know, to make you let you have your guacamole. So then I started researching, and I realized, hey – more and more people, the, the the consumption rates practically doubled. Everybody's in love with guacamole. And you, we had a terrible harvest last year. So when I go to class, I just put a guacamole up there. or I mean, a guacamole, an avocado up there. Bring some avocados and let students find out. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about supply and demand, right? Students really do understand supply and demand if you go to a burrito bar and you're fighting for your guacamole. Speaking of food. Reading your book, I realized that we're both fans of Chopped. And if you guys who are listening have never watched Chopped, it's a really fun show, even if you don't cook, because they get mystery baskets and they have to create meals from them. Like, you know, you may have to make a dessert from an octopus or something like that. So let's take that example. How can you use the format for Chopped and bring that into the classroom? Uh, well, other than my love for a good tentacle pie, I think there's probably a couple <laughs> of different ways that you can you can bring Chopped in. And uh one that I really do like is not necessarily looking at it from, uh, you know, the, the actual TV point of view, but thinking about this from like an, ac an activity in your, in maybe a math class or even, I gotta be honest, I love speaking from my mathematics background, but take it outside of the math class because instant relevance is a lot, uh, it's available for, 
for all content areas to apply. But let's uh, take a look at something from any class and say we've covered a couple of different topics or we've covered a couple of different concepts. Now, what if I put, you know, one idea from each one of those previous concepts and I put maybe four of them into a hypothetical basket for you. And now you as a student need to come up with something that synthesizes those four pieces. So if it's math, I might have given you uh, a formula that we looked at. I might give you a shape that we had used. I might give you a problem that we looked at, maybe an application and say, why don't you Create something that shows me that you understand how these four things are related. So take what are seemingly disparate ingredients and put together a coherent plate from this. Uh, and that goes into language arts classes too. You could talk about different pieces of speech or parts of speech and different uh, types of usage and different uh, ways that students can actually engage in writing and say, why don't you create something? And some kids might come up with a poem or a visual, or they might come up with uh, a short story that combines those pieces. But the idea of Chopped is, surprise, you don't know what's here, but use your skills, use your ideas, use your understanding of how things relate to make something. And that's what I want my students to be able to do is I don't want them to be able to repeat a formula to me and say, hey, I remember that the formula for the area of a triangle is one half the base times height. Like that's, that's boring and Google knows it as fast as I do or faster depending on how quickly I can speak. But I'd much rather have them be able to create and synthesize from the things that I taught them, which shows that they truly do understand. Um, that's one of my favorite things to use chopped as. Um, but another is actually, I like to, to have kids watch the episodes and analyze the show as a, uh, as kind of an example of decision-making and reflection. Because we tell our kids, we want you to reflect on your learning. We want you to make better decisions. We want you to make revisions. But this is an incredibly good visual on decision-making, reflections, revisions, and how you can uh, make changes on the fly and kind of an example of formative assessment uh, as a professional development tool, too. You know, I am so going to use that chopped idea. Um, one of my favorite vocabulary techniques is called synectics, where you compare, kids make comparisons from sort of random things. So thinking about that, what I could do or just put four items in a basket, we grab them. And let's say the student, let's say we've been studying the Great Depression, the students grab a peach. Okay, how a peach is like the Great Depression because, well, it's the pits, or it's rotten, or whatever they want to come up with. I, I'm so going to use that chopped idea. I just think they're just magic in that one. Thanks so much for sharing that. Could we even use the school lunchroom menu or things down at the cafeteria for relevance today? You have any ideas on that? Well, uh, yeah, that's fun actually, because you can use uh, that in a lot of different ways. The first would be simply to have kids do potentially a, a, like a how many different meals could you eat on this week's lunch menu? You know, so like they start to understand that, hey, a different meal is like it's the same drink and the same main course with a different side dish. So like I can make five different meals because they have five different side dishes and they start to count this thing up. And after a few minutes, there's a need for them to, to find a better way to count up all of these options. And then I teach them counting techniques, uh, uh, permutations and combinations and different ways to, to organize things um, all the way through uh, being able to use that menu for. Um, like different, different ways to look at the nutrition component of it and bring that into your classroom and say, is this a healthy way to live? Could I live off of my school lunch menu? Or even sometimes your kids are, are, are aching for change. And sometimes you just want to ask them, what would you change? And then 
they're going to go in and they're going to look at that menu probably more closely than they ever would have if I had given them a structure of go in, change one thing, count the nutrition, count the calories, do this. Like that's too much information. It doesn't, it doesn't open up the opportunity for inquiry. Just to say, listen, why don't you go in there? And if you were making a new lunch menu, you're the new person in charge. What would you change? And then once they've decided what they're going to change, you got to throw it back at them and say, now sell it to me. Sell it to the board, sell it to the parents and tell me why we should change. Um, and that's going into their public speaking from being able to sell, to sell that into their marketing and how they would approach a marketing appeal to that from marketing the food itself to marketing their plan and the understanding of health benefits of certain types of food and the health, the, the actual positivity of keeping some unhealthy foods in the menu to keep people buying from the menu. And there's a lot that goes into that too. You know, that's just getting me really fired up with some ideas. My mind's going a million miles an hour on this because in science, I could go to the cafeteria and we could do an environmental impact study and, and talk about all the utilities and all the drips and all the stuff that we, I just, I just am really getting energized from this, Dennis. So I'm going to forget to do this. So let's do this now. People are going to want to try to reach you. What is your website, your Twitter? How do people reach you? Well, you can find my website is DennisSheeran.com. And as I've explained to everybody my whole life, that's Dennis with one N, not two. Uh, I'd explain my elementary school principal that the name is Dennis, not Denise. So you can stop calling me that over the loudspeaker. But it's uh, DennisSheeran.com. And my Twitter and Instagram handles are at MathDennisNJ. So that's pretty straightforward right there. You can reach me that way. Uh, and that's how you can find me a lot. So you can, uh, most of the time I'm all over Twitter and my blog and you can find out more information about me there. And, uh, the instant relevance book is available on Amazon. That's been out since about July of 2016. And my newest book, which is part of the hack learning series posted in March of 2018, and it is hacking mathematics. And the subtitle there is 10 problems that need solving. And the goal of that book is to do a lot of talking about what we're talking we're saying here today, which is I'm not going to try to give you tips and tricks for how to teach quadratics better or how to help students learn how to add fractions. Although I have those tips and tricks, that's not the point of this book. The point is to approach the bigger issues that we are all dealing with. Like how can we restructure the time in our classroom? How do we approach homework in a way that it's actually valuable? How do we uh, foster student inquiry and how do we connect with other educators in the right way to help us grow as teachers? So those are some of the 10 problems that I feel need solving for math teachers. And that uh, book is also now available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Okie dokie. Well, I'm going to have to check that out. Dennis with one N is also on a Myad Expert, and he has a wonderful Pi Day contest. I know you'd have to make a middle note for that for next year because we had a lot of people grab that. So, and uh, guys with the podcast on the podcast page, um, we will put up some notes there and have links to Dennis's website and uh, book and all that kind of stuff too. So if you're driving, don't feel like you got to pull over and, and write all that down. You can always, we'll, we'll have that ready for you there. Okay. One thing that Dennis and I really have in common um, in our work uh, and in our belief system is really rethinking the role of those opening minutes in the classroom. Uh, a habit that's kind of just really crept into instruction for years is this sort of do now bell ringer. And um, we both kind of believe we can maybe do better than that. Give us some thoughts on what you think the opening minutes, what would really grab kids? 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, we are on the same page with that one, that the, the classic anticipatory set of one of last night's homework questions, or let's get tricky here, a math question that's a lot like, but not exactly the same as one of last night's math homework questions, uh, is not the best way to start off a class. Because you come in and you have kids who maybe they got all the homework right because it wasn't a great assignment and they don't need that time. Or some kids who were so confused that going over one just like it, Probably not going to unconfuse them, no matter how good of an explainer you are. It's become a point of, of wasted time, I, I think. And so I likened this to my experiences both as a musician and as a coach. <clears throat> so I'm a saxophone player. I have been for about 31 years now. And uh, I'm also a singer, and my wife is a singer. And I was a, a runner, and I coached track and cross country. And in each of those activities, we had to warm up. you know. And warming up was was what you did to prepare for for that uh, activity, whether you're going to be playing or singing or running. And so jumping into something like when I coached track, uh, I used to coach the distance runners and I would send them out on a mile and a half warm up, and they'd come back to the track and we would sit down and we would do some static stretching. And then I'd uh, take them out on the track for their distance workout and things went fine. And then I started coaching the sprinters. Now, if I'm going to coach sprinters, I better not send them out on a one and a half mile warm up and send, bring them back and then sit them down to do some static stretching because that is not what they're about to do. They're about to sprint. They're about to engage in high impact, high stress, quick response, fast switch activities. So I changed their warm up and they would do high impact bounding activities and quick, uh, quick response drills and hurdle drills to get their legs and their uh, muscles firing so they can activate not only their muscles, but their central nervous system to prepare their bodies to do the activity they were just about to do. Now, I was coaching 100 meter dash sprinters, and we certainly didn't warm up by doing the 100 meter dash because you don't warm up by doing the race. You warm up by un- getting your body prepared to do the components of the race. And I took that into my classroom and do a whole workshop series called From Do Now to Think Now because the do now problem is the wrong verb. I don't want kids just doing what I'm about to do. I want them thinking and I want them cognitively engaged in the process and the idea that they're about to get into. So instead of giving them a homework problem to do, I might ask them a question uh, that I call sometimes unanswerable questions, things that have no answer. I might show them a picture of something that I saw and say, what do you think of this? Or I saw this happen and I don't understand what's going on. What do you think? So they begin to look at that image, decide what's important, what's not, and maybe go look something up on the internet to find out some information about it, get some numbers, do some math, do some organization, share with their neighbor and say, I think it's this or that or the other thing. And now they've reached a point where they have looked at a question, thought about it, made a decision, gathered information, done some calculations and talked about it with someone. That's the exact structure I want in my math class. So that's the right warm up for my math class. So that if I turn and talk about uh, graphing quadratics next, it doesn't matter that I didn't talk about graphing quadratics in the warm-up because when I put a quadratic or a parabola in front of them that doesn't cross the x-axis, they might look at it and say, hey, that one's weird. It doesn't cross the x-axis. I wonder why. And that means they're in the right frame of mind to investigate and to learn. They're not just waiting for me to explain. You know what? I so appreciate that change from do now to think now. And that prepares them for this new lesson. It's it, We're not going from this this thing that really doesn't have much to do with it. I just think those opening minutes are so hugely important. And we know now with brain research that students 
actually learn the most and remember the most in the opening minutes. So sometimes I'm starting my lesson deep in that lesson when they're tired, worn out, and two kids are still looking for their homework, you know? So um, I really appreciate that. Okay, let's have a little fun here. Let's brainstorm kind of a little bit of a game. I'm going to give you a topic, and you tell me if you can think of some things that we could use that to bring some relevance in. You ready? All right, let's go for it. Okay, ready. Okay. Company logos. Oh, that one's some low-hanging fruit right there, Susie. Um, company logos are great. First, from uh, looking at them. There was a game a little while back on a, an app uh, for phones, uh, and you would have to identify the logo be- with pieces missing. So you might see something with w- that had a word in it, and the word was out, and you have to try to remember what logo it was. And the identification started to make me think about how many different logos kids would know. And so I created an activity where, where we started to investigate uh, the symmetries in logos, because I don't know if you know this, but most company logos or a lot of company logos and specifically a lot of auto logos are non-copyrightable because they're really just altered geometry. They're a couple of triangles put together or like Mitsubishi, which is three diamonds. You can't copyright the geometric shape of a diamond. So you can't copyright three of them. So we started to get into these shapes and ideas and said, I want you to investigate this and describe the transformations or describe the symmetries and then go out and play that game. And while you're playing it, find five of them that you can't explain. Now let's bring them in and see if we can figure them out together. Um, so from a math point of view, the company logos part is, is a lot of fun. Uh, from, uh, like I said, the writing, the marketing, the, uh, the other groups to come up with uh, instead to come up with a logo that represents an idea. Say uh, you have a new uh, eco-friendly detergent and you've been talking about the effects on the environment from different detergents and things and say, I want you to come up with a logo that not only represents uh, this company, but represents this company's message combined in one. And so they're learning to communicate very often wordlessly, which is one of the most difficult ways to communicate. And so that's a, a really fun way to see if I can go up and look at the logo that they made and think, well, that really makes sense for that company versus looking at it and saying, I don't, I don't know what's going on there or, or what's, what's that about? You want to be memorable. You want as a logo, you want people to see your logo and think that's that company and this is why. Okay, let's now go to a, a great American favorite, the hostess Twinkie. <laughs> uh, the host, that's fun. Um, listen, one of the things I love to do, whether you like it or not, is I graph shapes. I love graphing things. And so I'd take a Twinkie, uh, maybe a, a side view of it and a cross section of it, throw it into Desmos, the online graphing calculator that I love to use, and, uh, and graph it. Or go into a calculus class and try to model the hostess Twinkie because we can measure it and we can uh, come up with functions that uh, we can try to, to use to model that, which is a lot of fun. But that's, again, the, the, the math part of it. I think one of the things that's come up about Twinkies over time is this idea that they would be able to survive a nuclear holocaust, which maybe they will, maybe they won't, don't know. But uh, if something can survive the nuclear holocaust, I want to learn more about it because I wouldn't mind surviving a nuclear holocaust. So I think what that question is, like, can a Twinkie actually survive a nuclear holocaust? Well, that's enough. That's a big enough question to ask. One of the, again, I'm going to go into this. One of the things too many teachers do thinking that they're being great teachers is take that question and turn it into a five packet activity, five page packet for an activity that uh, has everything lined up. First, I want you to investigate the, the chemical and physical properties of the Twinkie. Second, I want you to investigate the plant where they're made. Third, I want you to investigate the wrapping. Fourth, I want you to investigate the, the, uh, 
expiration dates and how long it takes it would normally last and the effects of, of nuclear radiation on certain different types of products. I mean, stop. And there's, stop. A, and there's a rubric. And there's a yeah. rubric on the Twinkie. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. There's a Twinkie rubric. You know there is. And <laughs> That's so, a like, Twinkie no, rubric. No, we don't want a Twinkie rubric. I want my kids. And an essential question. Yes. Right. You know, if you find yourself writing the essential question, how does a hostess Twinkie survive the nuclear holocaust? You're too deep into lesson planning and not interested enough in getting your kids involved. So just put the question out there and then see where they're coming up with and guide them through the process. Because as the teacher, you know what you want your kids to learn. And if they're going down the wrong road, it's up to you to turn them down the river bend a little bit and say, let's, let's focus in this direction. You don't have to give it all to them and have them re- replicate it back to you. You just have to guide them through the process and then provide them with information that they need when they don't have it. And I think that, that the Twinkie question, the big question, uh, can really lend itself excellently in a science classroom, um, especially in an environmental science classroom. Well, I just ordered a case of them off Amazon while you were talking just to make sure that I have those stored just in case. That's a good idea. Uh, Okay. I'm going to go from the classroom. You're an instructional leader and you're a supervisor, an instructional supervisor. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about, um, I read this in your book and I thought it was pretty fascinating. Um, It's an interview question you use. So what you do is you talk the story about when you were almost gored running with the bulls and you tell that story about how this happened to you. And then you ask the applicant, tell me your most interesting story, how you would use that in the classroom. And then you sort of wait to see their responses. What does that tell you about the applicant? Well, uh, to start, first of all, I love telling that story, but I'm not going to tell it here because I want some people to pick up the book and read it there. But uh, I, that long story short, I was in Pamplona, Spain and did the running of the bulls and got knocked down and, and had a great experience with that. And I uh, came back um, and a lot of great changes uh, happened in my life after that experience. And when I share that, it's kind of funny. Picture yourself being interviewed for a teaching position and the person interviewing you is telling them a personal story about their lives that was life-changing and re- and I think pretty interesting and exciting. And I use that story and, and kind of grip them into who I am. And then when I turn back to them and say, that story is what I tell people when they ask me, what's one of the most interesting things that's ever happened to you? What's your story? Uh, I have to, to be a, a model in wait time at that point because they need a second to process what I just asked them, which was, tell me who you really are. And when they come up with their story, whether it's something about a trip somewhere or a family member uh, or a hard time or an excellent time, um, I see their eyes light up a little bit more and it's more about them and I get to know them a little bit, but that's not even the real takeaway. The best takeaway is when uh, they finish that story, I follow with, now how would you use that in your classroom? And I'm telling them, I want you not only to be you, but I want you to bring you to your classroom, because that's when students will bring themselves out to you. And I've had some uh, interview candidates do an excellent job at realizing like how they could bring that into potentially an effective lesson for kids that involves them, because kids care about answering questions when they really care about you. Um, and I've had others uh, sit across the table from me, dumbfounded, wondering, like, where did this crazy guy come from? And why does he want me to talk about my personal life to kids? I would never do that. And uh, I know who I want working with me. And I think that's a great way for me to tell uh, who I'm going to bring into my, my school. That's really an interesting perspective. And honestly, uh, this I've had so much fun talking to you today that, that the time has just flown. I'm going to... Uh, 
uh, kind of sum up a few of my takeaways. And if you'll do me a favor, Dennis, if you'll just maybe add one or two of what you would like to leave educators and leaders with, uh, you know, the big idea for me is it, relevance is all around us. I don't have to go do a two-hour uh, Google search tonight. I can just see uh, some things that I could bring into the classroom that my kids would be captivated by. Um, I love the way you phrase, instead of a do now, a think now, to really get kids started really on a great start in class every day. Uh, tell us some things. Oh, you know what, though? You know, I'm also realizing talking to you, some of this is really growth as an educator. I mean, I, I've, I'm going to look at my practices and I'm going to think maybe I could try some tweaking some things here and bringing some things in that will just really light my kids up on learning today. What kinds of things would you like to add as takeaways? Well, uh, I think those are great. I think you really, um, you definitely have picked up on the, the message I'm trying to communicate. And one of the things that I really feel very strongly about is that there was definitely a time where schools were filled with teachers who had content knowledge and they had that content knowledge there in order to be able to pass that content knowledge along to their students. Um, but with the availability of the internet and other sources that we have now, uh, teachers have got to stop being the information middleman. Like that is not our job anymore to, to collect and redeposit information. And one of the, the things that makes an irrelevant classroom is a classroom that is just information flow through. And so to take that, one of my biggest takeaways from the experiences that I've had in talking about my book and in, in writing it is we don't just look for that, that relevant opportunity around us to make our classroom more fun or to seem like we're more interesting or to, to make it a little bit more applicable to our kids. We look for it because that's how our kids will learn. They'll ask a question and then they'll go to the internet to figure it out. They'll be interested in something and then they will learn absolutely everything about that thing until the next thing comes along that they're interested in. And if we miss the boat on the things that they're interested in, then we're missing an opportunity to use what is a natural passion and to harness what is a natural interest uh, for our benefit. It's, you know, it's those things that, uh, we thought were bad, but are now good. We banned fidget spinners and bottle flipping instead of using them uh, for lesson planning. We ban silly bracelets instead of using them for lesson planning. We, we were, we're teachers. We ban everything because our classrooms you know, need to be disciplined so they can listen to us. Maybe if we stopped talking so much, we wouldn't have to ban so many things and we could listen to them. So one of the, uh, the, the key po the things that I saw in a classroom, and it was probably in classrooms when I was a kid, and uh, it might even be in classrooms you visit. And so I, I give you 100% permission to, uh, to back this claim up wherever you go, is to see those posters on a door that says, you have two ears and one mouth so that you can listen twice, twice as much as you speak. And teachers put those up, you know, to put kids in their place to say, you got two ears, listen up. Uh, I think those posters are directed straight at teachers. You need to listen twice as much as you speak because you will learn what your kids are saying and what they're interested in and what matters to them. And then you'll be able to plan experiences for them where they can really learn. Well, I think that's a, that's a great thought to close on. And when you look at current research, it's still showing that 
the average student is trying to spend the bulk of their day, as much as 80% of it, trying to listen to someone talk. And we don't learn like that. We learn, we got to, and some of this is a letting go on our part. And I've had to learn this too as a teacher that I'm going to have to let go and let my students be in charge for a while um, and, and learn how to facilitate some of that so they can really thrive. So it's it's really a process of growth as an educator that I've had to work on over the years, that you've had to work on over the years. Mm-hmm. So it's a process we're on. And I love that. I love where we're going on that. You know, I'm seeing more and more of students taking the active role in classrooms. So I'm super encouraged. Well, Dennis, I have just so loved learning from you today. And I never want to close a podcast without thanking every single teacher out out there for all the possibilities that you bring to the classroom for opening doors for your kids every day. Every week we have conversations with really interesting thought leaders like Dennis with one and Sharon, and we hope you join us next week. Thank you so much, Dennis, for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, for having me. And I echo that too, that uh, if I, if I mention some teachers in, in, in this conversation, uh, it's only because I see day in day and uh, day after day more and more teachers who care so much about their kids that they are looking for the best thing for them, looking for the best way to go and uh, creating more relevant and engaging opportunities for their students because uh, they're really thinking about the person that that kid is and not necessarily the material that they're teaching. So thank you for bringing that up. And thanks to all the teachers out there who have at any point in time uh, investigated or looked into what I've written about or shared with me on Twitter. You've made my teaching and my world an exciting place to be in right now. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much, Dennis. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our authors' work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.